Welcome to The Paul List, a daily comics analysis podcast. I'm Paul, um, and every day what I do here is I pick a comic book, and I try to analyze it through different lenses, try to integrate different perspectives at looking at comics. And um, today, um, I'm going to be talking about the Spider-Man by Todd McFarlane Omnibus from Marvel Comics. Of course, um, what we do here is that um, every day I take a comic and I discuss it. I invite you to dialogue with me on Twitter or Tumblr. You can find me at Tuplai, T-W-O-P-L-A-I. And please, um, uh, you know, subscribe to our show, review, share, rate, whatever <laughs> whatever means you have of um, showing that you, that you enjoy the show. Um, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, you name it. Uh, what we do is usually on um, Sunday and Monday, we cover superhero comics. Um, Sunday is our DC Super Friend. Monday is our Monday Marvel. Uh, but sometimes on Thursdays, what we do here is a Thursday throwback. And sometimes that Thursday throwback is a collection of some classic Marvel or DC comics, um, classic runs. We may also, we're also going to cover other classics of the comics canon on Thursdays. But today, there's uh, something that just kind of caught my fancy for reasons that I will <laughs> describe. Um, and that's the Spider-Man by Todd McFarlane Omnibus that um, I mentioned. Uh, I think it came out a, a few weeks ago um, from Marvel Comics. They collected up the um, adjectiveless Spider-Man run that Todd McFarlane wrote and drew. And drew. Uh, the first 15-ish issues. I think it's 1 through 14 and verse 16. Also included in this omnibus is the crossover with X-Force. Issue number 4, um, story that I think goes with issue 14 or 16 or something like that of this run, uh, which was uh, written and, and drawn by Rob Liefeld, of course. <laughs> um, and so when I name some, when I name drop some of those things, I think that there's at least a generational affinity of some of you out there. Um, if you are like me, roughly around your mid thirties, I'm 35, then uh, this book may have significance for you and your um, uh, fandom as a kid uh, of comics. Uh, maybe you weren't a fan of comics at the time, but maybe your cousin was, or your big brother. <laughs> and if so, then Spider-Man number one, which um, came out in 1990, I think around June, um, which had the the you know famous uh, web slinger in a crouched position with uh, the famous uh, Todd McFarlane Spider-Man webbing, uh, intricately drawn webbing surrounding him and spiders crawling all over him. Uh, the big eyes, the, the famous uh, uh, contorted body shape and um, the level of detail that marked Todd McFarlane's, um, you know, artistic oeuvre. <laughs> um, so I'm talking about this book because uh, obviously, as I've said, it, it really speaks to a time of my life, touches on a, a part of my life. Um, around the time that I was 10, you know, and, you know, they say that, uh, you know, the music that you listen to when you're 18 and 19 is the stuff that that stays with you for the rest of your life. I wonder if the visuals that you look at when you're 10 to 12 are the visuals that stay with you for the rest of your life, because, you know, um, I've moved on, I would say, <laughs> and matured. But um, I've mentioned before that Todd McFarlane was my first superhero celebrity um, my first comic book, uh, you know, um, uh, idol worship. <laughs> um, there was something in his art that I was so drawn to. And to think back now, 25 years later or so as an adult, on what it was that drew me to that art at that time is kind of an interesting thing for me to do. So that's why I wanted to talk about um, and, and actually to look back at this this book, uh, I wondered when I ordered it, when I saw that it was coming out, um, you know, what would my response be? What would it be to go back to these comics that when I was 10, 11, 12, you know, I just read repeatedly, read repeatedly, read repeatedly and became very ingrained in my consciousness. And I wonder what it would be like as an adult to go back and to look at this work. Um so a little bit of context and background, McFarlane by this point um, had become, you know, the big name celebrity uh, in comics that he um, would leverage with, you know, along with Eric Larson, who followed him on this Spider-Man run, um, along with Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld, of course, <clears throat> and a bunch of other creators um, to create Image Comics in 1992, um, which was a, a a revolution, as it's often said. It's a It was a landmark 
you know, a, a sea change, a milestone moment in comics when these creators who had become celebrities in their own right, not just behind the characters, but um, but because of their own style, had um, decided that, you know, the kind of uh, credit and reward that they were getting from Marvel and DC, the big two publishers, was um, not befitting their level of talent. And so they ventured together to leave at once Marvel and DC, and uh, I think mostly Marvel, and to start their own company, to have creator-owned characters, to make a statement, uh, to be able to have, you know, break free from the shackles of editorial, to be able to um, make their own comics. And, I mean, I think it's significant that, at, at least at the outset, Many of these creators were known as um, known for their art, more for their writing, um, and also I think it's significant that it happened at the time that it did. Um, there was a moment and a mood in the early '90s of um, of you know a, a certain kind of independence, and I think it's uh, not far from you know what was happening in in rock and what was happening in in uh, in hip hop and music. Uh, it was, you know, correlated things, some things that were happening in other parts of media. And, and, and it wasn't that so people broke off and were independent. That, that's been around forever. You know, it's not that people departed from the big corporation or the big labels. That's been around forever. It's that the cult of celebrity was such that you could break off, become independent, and not need to replicate the... Um, the, the infrastructure of the corporation in the same way. Um, and yet when they did, that's exactly what they found out that they needed. You know, it was the, the constraints of the corporation that, um, that they needed. I remember when I would ride my bike to the comic book shop, the local comic book shop near my house that, you know, really only lived, I think, three or four years. And, uh, and I went there the day that Spawn number one, was supposed to be released, you know, I'd read Wizard, and I'd stared at that um, advertisement for that cover, and how cool it looked, and knew exactly the day, and had it marked on my 10-year-old, uh, 12-year-old's calendar, or 11-year-old's calendar, and rode my bike to the comic shop, and said, today's the day, is spawn number one here, and uh, of course, it wasn't. Uh, <laughs> that was when I first encountered the uh, the comic book fact of the delay, <laughs> and um, and image hasn't let me down since. <laughs> it's persistently taken my favorites and found ways to delay them, but um, <laughs> but uh, it was worth the wait. You know, when it finally came, I um, I loved Spawn. I loved um, you know the stuff that that the image artists were doing. I think that I was young enough at that point to have not so much. Uh, you know, fidelity, um, not so much um, history, back history with the characters that I was disappointed that these were characters that were, um, you know, unfamiliar and new. They had enough elements of the old that I was excited about the image revolution as a kid. Um, in retrospect, it, you know, a little story that I haven't told yet is that I was a comic book fan as a kid. Uh, you know, image was exciting to me. Probably if just not long after that, you know, a few years by the time I was 14, 13, 14 years old, um, I uh, and, a, and a few good friends who used to read comics started to look at that stuff, started to become teenagers, started to think a little bit about how um, malformed many of the human figure and figures and anatomies were and how embarrassed we were to, uh, you know, it's funny, we weren't embarrassed about being comic book nerds, actually. We were embarrassed about how um, sort of cheap and exploitative some of this stuff was. Um, the violence, the giant guns, the giant uh, body parts. And and I think we were a little embarrassed as teenage guys. Uh, and so I jumped off comics for probably for qu until my college years, until I, you know, sort of returned with the serious graphic novel. Um, and missed out on a whole lot of the late 90s and, and early aughts. Um, of comics, um, but when I was on, you know, this was what I was on for. This was what I was excited about. Um, this is where my <laughs> the cusp of my adolescence met the cusp of the image revolution, and um, and you know, so to read Spider-Man uh, by Todd McFarlane is to almost look at a document of a moment when a sea change occurred. Uh, or was about to occur. And, you know, I, I talked about the, the aspect of this book that McFarlane, you know, ends his run here, 
um, somewhat frustrated actually with with uh, Marvel editorial, and then um, breaks off and goes and 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 starts Image with with the others. But it's also um, Spider Man number one at the time was also one of those early variant cover, you know, two point five plus million copies sold, uh, eventually to be blown out of the water by Jim Lee's X Men also adjectiveless x-men <laughs> title um but uh you know the, the the variant cover the sort of um uh gimmick cover the the uh, speculator trade uh, industry it just became um it's all the things that 90s comics were um and in the content themselves you know big artistically bombastic um stylized and stylish uh, maybe lacking some of the substance uh, of storytelling that um, that comics enjoyed in the past, but um, but yeah, I mean Rob Liefeld in a Levi's commercial, basically, that's what this stuff, that's what this stuff is. Um, McFarlane had done thirty-ish issues of Amazing Spider Spider-Man preceding this. I think he started at two ninety-eight or something like that, and um, quickly grew a fan following. He'd worked on a few other things before that, but it was really during his Spider-Man run, and I think he had done some work on Incredible Hulk before that, where he honed his artistic style to the point that it was what it was when he arrives at this omnibus. Um, you know, looking back on it, uh, I feel the same way that everyone feels, that McFarlane himself felt, that the story and the writing, you know, it's kind of canned, kind of overwrought, uh, there's some pretentious Miller, Mar Frank Miller, Dark Knight Returns kind of cloning of the narration stuff, and you know everybody sort of ridicules the um, <laughs> the throbbing background uh, pulse of doom, doom, doom that plays <laughs> in the background of of that first uh, story called Torment, which featured the lizard. Um, you know, I, I've read some critique that said that, uh, uh, and I'm sorry not to attribute this. I'm, I'm not. I don't remember where I read it, but. Did, you know, McFarlane's writing, even up till the point of Spawn, but um, but especially during this time when he's sort of still figuring out his his writing chops, you know, it seems like he's writing basically to serve his art. He's writing so that he can draw the kind of things that he um, likes to draw. And so I, I, I went back, I did read some of the stories, but they were basically as thin as I remembered. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, if you treat it like an art book, which is, you know, well served, I think, by this this idea of an omnibus. If you treat it like an art book, then um, it's fascinating to look at. And so I, I guess that's what I want to focus on. I'm not going to do much analysis and con about the, the content of the story or anything like that or the um, uh, the diegetics, <laughs> the, uh, the um, gender construction of Mary Jane. That's not today's analysis, although maybe it w would be interesting one day. Um, instead, I think I just want to talk about the art. I want to talk about what it was about this McFarlane art that drew me so much at the time and what it represented and spoke to about the moment and about what, um, where comics art, superhero art especially, was at the moment. Um, and, you know, I had said at the top there's these three things about this run that are um, sort of that that's that sort of stick out that are maybe the first things that come to mind and one of them is the detail one you know one of them is the webbing is that um you know previous to mcfarland people drew the uh the, the spider-man webbing as basically a you know checkerboard or you know a series of cross cross uh a, a plaid basically <laughs> lines going in in opposite uh directions um but what um what McFarlane introduced was this uh, excruciatingly detailed art of making webbing that looked like um, thread, uh, messy thread, sinewy, uh, you know, sort of every every time it shot out of his wrist or web shooters or whatever it was, um, you know, a, a thread covered with a, a thread uh, sort of um, circling around it. It was just a kind of um, noodling, a kind of detail, a kind of uh, 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 you know, um, busyness in the in on the page uh, that was really pretty characteristic characteristic of McFarlane. So I want to talk about that a little bit. 
then I think what people often think of is what he did with Spider-Man's uh, body, which is to, which was to contort him as he flew through the air um, in improbable, you know, sort of extensions that would uh, no doubt tear ligaments. But um, you know, they were plausible enough somehow. He he um, made him. Uh, you know, something that, in fact, CGI animators would struggle to do years and years later, made him um, be able to move in all kinds of crazy ways and, you know, have his knees extended above his neck and and his arms reaching down below, you know, far below his crotch. You know, he, he had his body um, contorted in ways and yet still somehow maintained uh, the believability of that body it didn't turn into a rag doll um somehow and so that's um that's another aspect i think people think of is how spidey flying through the air under um, mcfarlane's pen became its own acrobatic work of um sort of you know artistic fancy uh, and then finally uh, i think one of the things you know you'll chalk up to to mcfarlane is the big eyes um, he took the you know narrow eyes, the sort of sliver of an eye, surrounded by a black sliver of an eye, that uh, you know Ditko and Romita had um, done a little bit of stuff with. They widened, they narrowed that that expressed emotion, and he made the eyes cover you know more than half of the Spider-Man face, which was a you know a pretty big cosmetic change that stuck around for a pretty long time after McFarlane's era. So. Um, and so I, I guess I have some thoughts on each of those things. And, and to start from where I started, the, the noodling, you know, I, I think that was one of the things that attracted me about McFarlane. You know, um, it was, it was there and it's there in this run and in, in the webbing. You see it in, in Morbius's hair or the lizard or the Wendigo's teeth. Um, you see it in the face wrinkles of all the characters he draws. Um, Calypso, who is a character that, um, that's part of the Torment storyline. Um, has some of the, uh, you know, some hints of what happens later on in his spawn art where he just kind of goes nuts with the folds of capes and the chains flying all over the place. There's fire, there's smoke. Um, it's a natural fit that Ghost Rider makes appearance because Ghost Rider's flames are the perfect McFarlane, um, you know, material, chemical <laughs> to, um, to noodle the heck out of that stuff. And I think one of the things that... Um, stands out to me is that in contrast maybe to stuff in the earlier in the 80s and then even in contrast to some of the you know McFarlane of course is is hugely inf influential he spawns no well pun intended <laughs> he spawns all kinds of imitators and even I think makes the maybe paves the way in the mainstream for a lot of artists who um were doing this kind of thing prior to him um but but um but it becomes much more, I think, palatable for a Sam Keith, for instance, to um, noodle his way through his drawings, to um, enlarge and caricature size his figures and, and anatomies. Um, I think, uh, you know, McFarlane is, of course, n nobody's utterly original. He's a step in a progression, but I think he's a big step in a progression towards certain things. And, that, and those certain things include, you know, that, that um, he's not afraid to fill the page with figures. You know, it, it, one of the things you, you seem to say, and, and this may be at the cost of the storytelling sometimes, but it seems like every panel, especially here in this, in this you know, un, unadjective Spider-Man run where he gets full control as a writer, every panel is like a cover. You know, the, um, the direction that characters are facing to each other it may not have any realistic relationship <laughs> in the way that they speak to each other, but it does look pretty darn cool. Uh, it does. It looks pretty darn cool because of placement and size and, and angles. Um, I'm looking now at Spider-Man holding a boy who's sort of been half turned into a lizard, and behind him, the Hobgoblin confronts the Ghost Rider, and um, you know the figures fill the panel. And it's one of the things if you take a page of Ditko and a page of um, of uh, of uh, McFarlane, and you you um, compare the amount of lines on the page first of all. And then the extent to which those lines fill the page, the objects fill the page and fill the panels. You can see that it's not that um, McFarlane never uses, makes use of white space or negative space, and I'll talk about that later, but it's that he is, um, uh, I think where he's brash and 
you know, where he felt at the time really modern was that he's unafraid to, um, to, to, to fill to a degree that others didn't in the past. And if I were to guess, I mean, if I'm Sal Buscema, Buscema, <laughs> um, I would have not done that. If somebody said, hey, why didn't you do Todd McFarlane in 19... 19- 76 <laughs> you know i would have I, I might have my response might have been well it's too much clutter you know it crowds up every panel it crowds up every page and if you crowd up the page with lines what suffers is clarity but i kind of wonder if you know part of mcfarland's success is not only a reflection of of what he does but that he speaks to a moment and i and i think what i'm talking about is that by the time you're at the end of the 80s, um, you know, with the amount of TV, not just, of course, the presence of TV, which has been there for decades, but the amount of TV, the amount of print advertising, the amount of um, visual culture that exists, there's, you know, it, it's, it's, why, it's why commercials could be so much shorter by the 90s, um, because there's so much more assumed, you know, and, you know, now we have it in our you know, teens, right, to, to full tilt with the internet and advertisements that flash in six seconds and you already kind of know everything. But uh, I guess I'm saying that the the amount of detail, the uh, the extent to which he packs a panel or a page, how extreme the close-ups are, how extreme the, um, the, cut, the cuts where you only see the lizard's mouth and that should be enough without seeing his eyes. Uh, you see uh, a, a figure flinging uh, through a glass window and um, you don't have to see where the glass belongs. That's enough. You know, just the faintest suggestion of um, some window shades is enough to tell you that that is the window. And I think that's an amount of assumption about the um, visual decoding of the reader that McFarlane can do in 1990 that you have a harder time doing in 1976. Um, I don't stand by that argument. <laughs> Somebody can, you know, prove me manifestly wrong. Um, and I think you're probably going to f- be able to find illustration of this kind, you know, dating back much longer. But can do? You, but do you fill a whole comic with it? You know, I feel like, you know, to fill a whole comic with it breaks some of Eisner's rules, if you will. And but but you can break those rules um, when when it's 1990 and when you're Todd McFarlane. Um, and, and, you know, I just, you know, when, uh, you know, you read like uh, Andrew Loomis, famous sort of um, art and illustration teacher, he talks about when you use pen lines and he's got all these reasons that you use pen lines, you know, to make an outline, to, um, to, to, uh, to articulate a, a fold, to create a texture, to um, give you the sense of gradient and shadow uh, and light. Uh, that is some of the reasons <laughs> that these lines exist in, in Todd McFarlane's art, but there's a lot of the lines that exist almost purely for style, you know, and, um, and they, they do add texture, they do involve shading, but it's almost like you, they're not purely for those things, it's sort of like they're riffing on those things, it's like, how would I describe it? I mean, it's like there's certain instruments that um, when you played them in blues and when you played them in, in rockabilly, <laughs> they had a functional purpose. But by the time they become used in, in the, in the um, hard rock and metal of, of Guns N' Roses, they're not, even, they're not just for the functional purposes. They, they create an aesthetic that's layered on top of and past the function. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm a little talking out of my, my, my zone here, but I feel like that's part of what McFarland's lines do. And, and it's why, you know, maybe certain read, certain readers, observers feel like it's excessive, you know, it's unnecessary. But I think for me, it was sort of like, wow, this guy is riffing on the, the idea that, a, um, you know, a, 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 anything, a, a torn, uh, a piece of fabric or a, a spider web or a fence or a you know an old man's face has lines and he's riffing on those lines and they feel right they feel wrinkly they feel layered they feel textured and yet what is it about that that creates what is it about those lines that create that effect it's not this it's not some truth to the um visual representation it's almost some riffing upon the um the 
the whole idea of comic art, of illustrative art. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I'm too confident about that. <laughs> well, you know, one of the places actually you see it best if you happen to have the book in front of you is that um, I think that McFarlane often loses it when he's being inked by someone else. And, and then, for instance, uh, issue 11 in this book, um, which is part of the Wendigo storyline, I think, he's inked by Rick Magyar. And there are pages that you just know McFarland didn't ink this page. You can just tell because the forms are there, the um, you know the outlines are there, the shapes are there, but there's something in the noodling in that detail that's missing. It's almost something that any art, other artist would consider extraneous, or if they tried to introduce it, they sort of may not do it in quite the with quite the um, the confidence that McFarlane does. Um, but but you also see it actually in if you look at the later Spawn work. You know, the difference between when um, he inks Capullo and when um, when he doesn't ink Capullo. Because I think looking at Capullo and Spawn is fascinating because I think there's a lot of ways where as a storyteller and as a, a formalist, uh, Capullo is actually, um, you know, more capable than um, than a lot of the, 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 the McFarlane work, especially the run-of-the-mill McFarlane work where he's just tired of drawing. <laughs> you, know? uh, you could see that. Capullo came with a kind of competence that, um, uh, you know, maybe initially, I, I remember when um, when Todd stopped drawing Spawn, I just, you know, felt really cold about it. And But over time, especially um, throughout the extended run of Spawn, as Capullo sort of warmed up and felt more confidence, you could just start to tell that he almost had a, uh, a sense of, of range and storytelling chops that, you know, McFarlane probably could do sometimes, but not with that kind of consistency. But when you had the McFarlane inks on the Capullo pencils, you just could still retain this kind of dynamism that is created by that, um, you know, extraneous line, you know. And it's missing when he's not inking it. It's missing when, when Magyar has his blocks and his shapes, but you don't have that fine detail. Um, and, you know, to speak of that fine detail, it's definitely something of the era. You know, it's it's there's a certain kind of detail that's also what makes, you know, Jim Lee, Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld, Rob Liefeld of that era. A lot of also extraneous lines. But um, but I think with McFarland, it was different. And, and I really couldn't put a finger on it at the time. But I think it's, you know, it's it's mm, I would say that it's like. It's more tatters than it is sheen, you know. <laughs> Liefeld and Lee felt like um, they had a certain gloss, and um, McFarlane feels like it has a, a certain roughness. Um, and then, and then I think in the figures, there's like, like what as I was saying, and as I'll talk about this, this kind of contortion, rather than um, than than maybe the finesse of some of the the characters and the um, the body work, the figure work of of those other creators. Uh, those creators looked posed. The McFarlane looks um, almost perfectly caught in a spontaneous acrobatic con contortion. Uh, you know, there's a lot more crags in a kind of like caricature, um, and it's not as clean and crisp. Um, I felt I feel like McFarlane is Pearl Jam uh, and not um, Metallica. <laughs> I'm drawing, grasping here at comparisons to talk about the visual stuff that you can just probably open up something and see. Um, yeah, so, so I mean, one is there's the noodling, the detail. And, you know, it's it's what makes this, the McFarlane webbing the McFarlane webbing. Um, I, I think another piece of it that I would um, point to is that, um, is, again, the, the, the body contortions. And, you know, one of the things that you start to realize with McFarlane's art is the kind of tricks that he uses, um, especially at this point where I think he's so visually assured that um, he's kind of unafraid to, he, he doesn't feel like he needs to do the kind of establishing shot dynamics that um, other artists do or feel the obligation to do. Like, you know, the establishing shots which uh, if you don't know are the you know the panels that give you a sense of the scene right if you start on a character's face and you stay on you know 
locked into their face the whole for the whole scene you know the three pages or whatever of that scene and you never give a sense of what room that faces in then i think it's it's very disorienting for a reader sometimes people do that on purpose of course but um you know cardinal rule right of <laughs> comics you you have to have early on maybe the very first panel an establishing shot we're in this room we're in this house we're in this warehouse we're in this you know mountain or whatever and you know mcfarland has a a sort of defiant rebellious like i'm not i will not do the establishing shot first i will do this you know page of horizontal panels where i'll show you slivers of the lizard's face or slivers of the city i guess that's kind of establishing shot but it's it's broken up and you know one thing it, it does is it saves him from having to do the architecture <laughs> and the perspective the three-point perspective massive cityscape but um <laughs> but it also kind of allows him this um this ability and i think you the more you look at the pages the more you're like whoa um that you know i think the classic picture of a mcfarland <clears throat> um work of art is is spidey kind of all askew and what he somehow was able to do is to make these gorgeous pieces of art where um you didn't have to show all of spider-man's figure y you you could show part of it um and i think that's what he does a lot with his characters um there are certain parts of the body that mcfarland really likes to put right in front <laughs> it's a hand he, he's awesome at drawing hands they're like these meaty fleshy <laughs> sort of globular things that are perfect for the mcfarland sort of a bounciness I, I feel like there's a um something about him and, and you see it actually in capullo and especially his a lot of his batman work that's very fleshy you know it's very um organic it's very uh uh a meaty you know like you f you just there's almost a, a pudginess to even peter parker's fingers that you know it's helped by those detail lines that i talked about but also this sense of proportion he's kind of unafraid to let um something something globular be globular <laughs> um unlike i'd say in contrast to say like jim lee or, or rob liefeld and so he, he really likes to put hands front and center. He really likes to put his faces front and center. He likes to put, uh, if it's a full body shot, he likes to put the chest out, you know, and, and to have a sort of like a really rounded kind of chest of a character, um, male and uh, female, unfortunately, sometimes, um, you know. Um, but what you start to see in this is that some of those contortions are uh, look really cool, uh, they're not easy to do. It's not easy to, as I said before, make Spider-Man fold and bend that much and yet not turn him into a, a piece of paper. You know, I think the way he does that is really by, um, uh, you know, looking at these joints where, you know, Spider-Man is supposed to be able to bend, maximizing those joints, but making sure that the, f like I said, that meatiness, that fleshiness of the anatomy is stretched out, but still sort of buoyant enough that uh that it looks you know real it looks extreme but it looks real um he does that also a lot by sort of articulating muscles that whether they're anatomically perfect or not they they convey the point they're what we think of as muscles um or fingers or you know whatever <laughs> um and and i think you know again like to out the door with the the um correctness of the anatomy it's much more about our impression of the anatomy and you see that not so much in Spidey, but actually in all of the monsters. You know, it's funny. I One of the things looking at this book in retrospect now is that when I was reading at the time, I did not. it did not occur to me that what McFarlane was doing was he was making Spider-Man into a horror book. <laughs> I, because, you know, I had really no attraction or familiarity with horror as a genre in almost any medium at that time in my life. Um, I knew that this was dark. I knew there was a lot of blood and gore, and I knew there were sort of monstrous figures and, and stuff like that. But the extent to which the McFarlane visuals draw from the horror um, media, you know, whether it's movies or, or television or, um, or uh, you know, Stephen King covers or whatever, uh, I just had, you know, like totally missed that as a kid. And looking back at it now, it just jumps at me. It's like so clear. You know, sort of every horror trope that you can imagine um, 
uh, is part of what makes his art so luscious and bloody and organic. Um, and, you know, again, that sense of feeling like something is um, organic. It, uh, so um, I guess one of the, again, classic comic rules of art, you know, is that you have your backgrounds and then you have your figures, um, your, your background and your foreground. And really what's in the fore most often is what we want to identify with as humans. So that's your superhero swinging through the sky. And then in the background is what you think of as the built environment or the, you know, physical environment. And so this is your, you know, uh, row of trees or your very straight um, buildings or, you know, the, the corners of the room behind you. Um, and so oftentimes what you need to do as an artist is you need to make sure that your uh, characters are organic, by which we mean that they're moving, they're um, at angles that aren't like 90 degree angles, they're, you know, your your um, perspective lines of the back corner of your room is in a 90 degree angle or whatever, you know, or, you know, with perspective, but the, the characters themselves are rounded and at odd angles and sort of, you know, twisting and, and not having these strange tangent lines, as they call them. Um, in relation to the background, and that way your fore your figures stand out in the fore, and then your background is clearly background. Uh, I feel like McFarlane likes to kick that whole principle in the butt <laughs> and out the window. And what he likes to do instead is to create a um, a chaotic panel that has its own internal balance. Um, of course, not the first to do this. In fact, one of the first artist I noticed doing it noticed doing it looking back is Byrne um, and you know McFarland's talked before about owing a certain debt to John Byrne um, he does it I think a lot in um, you know I see it a lot in his 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 uh, X-Men stuff with Claremont um, and in his Avengers all kinds of things you know his Superman there's a way in which um, he starts to defy this idea that I need to um, have this background foreground and instead he, he can fill the page with a certain chaos if that page or that panel the chaos within it has a certain relationship of not overlapping with the next panel um, I, I don't I'm trying to figure out how exactly to explain it um, but you know one way I'd explain it is when I think about the movies that are um, you know big box office at the time we're talking here about 1989 1990 batman indiana jones you know sequels and back to the future sequels and all that kind of stuff um total recall die hard that kind of thing uh, even animation like little mermaid if you contrast little mermaid with pre sort of disney renaissance um movies uh or if you contrast those those kind of spielberg you know post spielberg action movies to all the you know blockbusters of of earlier eras, even Star Wars, there's um there's this thing where the camera or whatever or the framing at that time starts to become not afraid of or less afraid of needing to make sense, you know, needing to make visual sense to match with the expectations of the normal sort of eye level viewer because you start to trust. This is almost a trick that becomes employed more and more and actually sort of feeds on itself. You start to trust that people can catch on to this almost, you know, in, a not, in an earlier era, would have thought of it as a nauseating camera movement, right? Just like today, the shaky cam becomes nauseating for old people like me. <laughs> that sort of, um, you know, extreme bird eye or extreme worm's eye view that, um, you know, just really, and, and sort of extreme close-up that um, is very extreme, <laughs> and this is why comics at the time are all become uh, all become extreme. Uh, <laughs> um, it's such a early '90s word. Um, yeah, so so back to the contortions. I feel like what McFarlane can do is to not feel like he needs to have a figure standing um, with enough information on the panel. Uh, that we can completely fathom the figure. It's almost like he trusts at that point, or he can trust, or in, or he finds it cool when he sees it, and now he can do it in every single panel that he draws. 
that um, he can show the back of a character. He can show an extreme close-up of one-third of the profile of their face. Mary Jane's hair is enough, or, you know, um, uh, Peter's, uh, you know, or Spider-Man sort of popping out, and you, you really only see his forearm is enough in a panel to suggest everything else that's going on. And not only to suggest everything that's going on, but to, in fact, to be as dynamic to be as dynamic as the whole picture. And so not every page has to be a splash page, even if every panel hints at being a splash kind of panel. Um, and a lot of that, you know, is him employing shadows and foreshortening. Um, that's one of the things that be, be, besides the, or maybe, you know, side by side with the meatiness, the flesh, fleshiness that I was talking about is that McFarlane is really good at, at you know, believable foreshortening. Um, foreshortening where you know meaning the sort of perspective where when something is approaching you it sort of becomes bigger and then when something's farther away it becomes smaller and if you have an arm say and that arm is reaching towards you uh, you know you can imagine you can't do Spidey in these weird contortions and make him this flat two-dimensional character a lot of him has to move forward and backward even if you see him from a side view you know you have to show um, his the front part of his leg in front of the back part of it, the upper part of his leg, you know? And so he, he um, McFarlane seems to do a lot with foreshortening, not just with, with people, but with objects. Um, and, and, you know, part of that extremism, that dynamism of the camera relies on his um, confidence with McFor, McFor, McFarlane short, McForeshortening. I'm trying to make a thing there. That didn't really work. <laughs> Um, anyway, all of that, I think, makes for angles that push and, and kind of defy the Dicko, Ramita, Buscema rules of style, of form. And I think that's part of the feeling of this work that makes it look like uh, somewhat rebellious, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, so last thing, and I think rooting all of this is the big eyes. What did it do? And why did he choose to enlarge Spider-Man's eyes? You know, um, part of me wonders if it's just a, a time when bigger eyes are cooler. <laughs> I don't know, like uh, Tom Cruise wearing aviator glasses in uh, sunglasses in, in Top Gun, you know, so we're, we're good with the gigantic, you know, <laughs> shimmery eyes. <laughs> um, but I, I do wonder if... Part of the big eyes is that, you know, Spider-Man has always a character, been a character that we're meant to, um, to sympathize with, and um, uh, unlike another character who maybe, I think many instances of Wolverine, we're not necessarily to sympathize with him. We're just sort of to enjoy him from a distance. But Spider Spider-Man is all of us. You know, that's kind of the, the, um, the attraction, the appeal. But um, having those smaller eyes was to really take w one of the features of the character of the costume that revealed something about him and then to really actually you know for the sake of realism reduce them to their their appropriate size by making his eyes huge um you know you take the part of spider-man that is the most expressive you know this feeling that we have as humans that the eyes are the windows to the soul that the subtlest you know um, manipulations of the shape of the eyes can tell us the deepest things that are true about whether a person is lying or scared or, um, or you know, craving attention or whatever. Um, and those big eyes um, becoming so much bigger really take this character who we want so much to sympathize with and, to be honest, in the hands of McFarlane's writing, we especially want so much to sympathize. We're used to identifying with Peter, and uh, the writing doesn't make it easier sometimes <laughs> to identify with Peter. But the big eyes really do. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, like coming back to this idea that it's so full of extraneous lines and texture and heavy detail and the sort of chaos of always things flying all over the place, chains or wood or whatever, glass windows, you know, if you have that much chaos on a page, emotionally speaking, you need somewhere to ground your emotional identification. And so there's these pages where it's Spider-Man's contorted body, it's the detailed webbing all over the place, but the one place where there's almost clean of lines 
is those big Spider-Man eyes. And I, th I feel like that keeps us in some ways emotionally connected. Am I reading too much into this here? Uh, emotionally, collect, emotionally connected to Spider-Man as a character, even as all this chaos is going around. Um, it's, 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 I guess to come back to what I was saying earlier, that even though McFarlane's style is very busy, he also knows, and I think some of his imitators later didn't know as well, how to make use of the white space, the negative space. And some of that negative space, for instance, is is um, Spider-Man's eyes. Um, and in other characters, you can see he he also does a lot with his eyes. I mean, overall, even as as a as a drawer of, <laughs> as an artist of faces, he tends to have bigger eyes than say, again, your Jim Lee's and your Rob Liefelds, who would often make their eyes into slivers that looked cool and piercing, but um, I, to me, were very distancing. Uh, his eyes in contrast McFarlane's eyes are always big even the non-Spider-Man eyes you know um, and actually the absence of the eyes that you could look into often reflected a character that was um, at a remove um, but anyway it's the big eyes that's the that's the use of the um, unrendered space that gives us an opening to feel about the character I feel like he does this actually with the other characters in this, you know, he, he brings uh, Wolverine into one of the stories and I feel like what he does with Wolverine is very similar to what um, what he did with Batman in Batman Year Two and then later in the Spawn Batman crossovers. I loved McFarlane Batman. It was just so cool looking even though there was um, far too little of it for my liking. But, um, you know, to take the sort of sharp pointy ears and to pull them out in sort of extreme way. I feel like he took a page out of Norm Brayfogle there and to t take some of the exaggerated portions and, and slightly exaggerate them a little bit more, not to the extent of, you know, your later Kelly Jones or whatever, but, but just enough. Um, and then, um, and then to enshroud a whole lot of, this is Wolverine and Batman, a shroud enshroud most of them in shadows, except the parts that are just most identifi identifiable, you know, the claws. Or in the case of the Batman, the you know the the symbol or whatever, um, and I think part of that too is that there's something lively and organic in doing that. Um, again, that meatiness and fleshiness of the hands and the limbs and the noses and the appendages—that's sometimes all he shows. He shows a, a figure enshrouded in black, and then that key appendage or that bit of the nose that comes out. Um, yeah, I mean, again, all of this, not utterly original. You can see the pages that he's taking out of, as I said, Bray Fogle, um, something out of Neil Adams for sure. And Neil Adams always felt like uh, extremely human because they were so, his, his characters were so sinewy and he, he has a, a bit of sort of like a noodly detail that does that, um, that adds to that. Maybe he pioneered a lot of that stuff, but, um, I feel like rather than the Neil Adams sinewy and, and, and taught, kind of characters. Um, I don't know. McFarlane is a little more able to put some meat on those bones. And actually in that regard, I think more like Michael Golden, um, John Byrne, uh, to, to kind of have this elastic and fleshiness to the characters. Um, yeah. And, and then, and then sort of in the, in the detail and yet something, so in the sort of horrific detail, there's definitely some Bernie Wrights and I, I see this, the Swamp Thing influence. Um, and then something also in, in, in Walt Simonson, I think. But um, yeah, but I, I guess looking back on it now to try to draw to a conclusion, I really thought this was going to be a 20-minute episode um, to kind of draw this to a, a conclusion, this overlong discussion of McFarlane, not formally, but stylistically. Um, when I think to what it was about... 10-year-old me, and not just 10-year-old me, but 10-year-old me living in America at the turn of the decade or whatever, um, that this was so appealing to me. It was, I think, the, the time, you know, I, I guess I go back to all those movies that I was talking about, the, um, you know, your action movies, your Indiana Joneses, your Batman, your Ghost, um, <laughs> Hunt for Red October, it was a time. It, it was a time. I think when um, 
big budget movies, big box office movies, could also be genre movies. You know, of course, it was the action movie that sort of dominated and reigned. But you could have this touch of horror, like Ghost. You could have a touch of horror mixed with a touch of romance. Or even Home Alone was this <laughs> really horrific situation that was played for comedy. Uh, uh, you know, of course, you have your Ninja Turtles movie and your Dick Tracy movie and your uh, Batman movie, uh, all sort of ridiculous comic book things. But, you know, prior to this, I feel like you had to play them for their ridiculousness in a sort of Batman 66 style. And now you could sort of almost be self-serious. I mean, you have to satirize yourself a little bit as, as those movies all did. But you could sort of be self-serious and try this whole um, let me take myself seriously as this very genre kind of thing. Um, and I, I mean, how that reflects on McFarlane to me is I feel like what he does is he takes these very stylized things and he represents the, the entering into the mainstream of that very stylized thing. You know, I, I remember my parents, <laughs> my beloved parents, uh, seeing some of my Spider-Man comics with McFarlane's art and just being like, Oh, why do you like that stuff? It looks terrible. It looks like... Uh, it looks like it's supposed to be some kind of creepy, gross thing. And I just was like, what? This is so mainstream, you know? It's Spider-Man, you know? But it was that you took the extreme of uh, Bernie Wright's and Swamp Thing and this the those kind of aesthetics of horror, and you could bring them into a very mainstream kind of work and have it have a very mainstream kind of appeal. Um... Even as I say this, and even as it comes out of my mouth, whether or not that is, you know, um, uh, uh, unique to the the times, <laughs> I'm wondering if I'm just sort of like, you know, speaking out of my rear end. Maybe I am. Uh, maybe you tell me that I'm wrong. Uh, but anyway, yeah. And I, and I, I I don't know. I wonder if it's it's just marking, it marks that era that that's that's what a McFarlane was up to. Well. I should stop. Uh, so let me know what you think um, at Tuply at T-W-O-P-L-A-I on Twitter, Tuply at gmail.com. I'm almost a little embarrassed that I went on this long in, and in this much detail, maybe saying very little of substance about Todd McFarlane's work and Spider-Man. But, well, here we are. Thanks for listening this long if you have. And, uh, you know, let's keep reading, okay? All right. <laughs>